You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm your host today, Jessica Kesselman, and I want to talk about water buffalo, native to South Asia and found in Northern Africa and in South America, and of course in Italy, where if you're like me, your first taste of a buffalo milk cheese was probably Italian. Buffalo milk cheese and gelato are made in the United States, but they're still pretty elusive for many of us, but that's changing. So I'm dedicating a couple of episodes to talk about buffalo milk and its expanding presence in the cheese landscape in the United States and around the world. And um, I find it really interesting that buffalo milk cheeses are showing up in more places in in different formats as well. Um, We have had, over the last couple of decades, buffalo farms that have come and gone in this country. We've had creameries try making cheeses with buffalo milk, but it seems like right now we are at a moment where the visibility of these creameries and buffalo milk farmers is really taking hold. And uh, we are seeing a momentum building. Today, my guest is Sarah Rollins. She's the owner and operator of Bayou Sarah Farms in Louisiana. And she not only raises and milks water buffalo, but she's also making dairy products using their milk. And she's part of a new generation of dairy farmers who are really committed to regenerative farming practices and natural cheese making. Sarah, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about water buffalo, the animal, and um, what your present herd is like? Um, I got, or, uh, the buffalo that I have here arrived in April of 2020, and I had eight at that time, and now I have 15, and I've sold one, um, so my herd is slowly growing. Um, I was particularly drawn to the buffalo, um, for their temperament, and, that is why I find mm-hmm. it important to be growing the herd slowly like I am, um, as I've gotten to know them all individually and their family structures, they kind of remind me of elephants. And, um, and oh, wow. in that I've, you know, in February, I purchased three pregnant heifers that I've added to the group and they're still, I mean, they, they're fa- fairly new, still we're only in May, but um, they keep a distance from the herd and sometimes they'll be with them but there's a real hierarchy going on all the time. Um, but they are wonderful animals. They produce a delicious pure white milk. It's very high in milk fat. 
And um, they do great in my area here in Louisiana where um, we get a whole lot of rain and sometimes rain a lot at one time. So the ground will stay wet. Um, mm. I was originally looking into having a small goat dairy, um, but then in looking at the um, health risks and the problems with their feet and different things in a wet climate, um, water buffalo became more appealing um, for many reasons, but that being one of them. And so they seem to be pretty well adapted here. It's, it's hot. I've got a pond for them and they love the rain. Yeah. I mean, buffalo, water buffalo have a reputation uh, uh, for being very sensitive, particularly around milking. I've heard some people, you know, call them divas or just like needing a lot of, a lot of um, anxiety reducing um, tactics. Um, but I, you know, love reading on your website, you talking about um, your approach to milking. Yes. So they are very particular. Um, some mornings, someone will just decide they just don't want to give their milk to the calf or to me. And, um, you know, well, huh. that, that happens on occasion. And I, at this point, am easy, uh, easily able to let it go because I, I don't have any contracts for my milk or anything like that as I'm just learning and growing. Um, but kind of learning to see why they're doing that and what that entails. Um, with what I do here, I have the um, all the calves stay with the with their mothers for life. Um, I will wean them at 10 months if the mother doesn't wean them naturally on her own. Um, and at that point, they're separated, but they're still um, they can still see each other, and they're still within calling distance. So I feel like that relieves a lot of anxiety for them too. Um, and that 10 month period is the 10 month period that I will be milking. Um, the cows, and so they're with their calf for the duration of that cat, the lactation for that calf. And so we, um, I'll put mm -hmm. the babies up at night. I have a little mobile um, cattle trailer, just old rusty trailer that I have parked out in the field that'll move as the um, buffalo rotate around the pastures. And there are cattle panels set up in a little circle uh, at the back of that cattle trailer. And so I'll put the calves up at night so that um, they don't nurse throughout the evening. And then in the morning, whenever it's time to milk, I'll um, walk out there and the moms will greet me and I'll um, open up the gate to the trailer. The calves will walk right in and I'll shut it and then I'll let the moms into that little circle area on the outside one by one and let the calf out. And the calf will um, start nursing while I brush the mom and get everything cleaned up if, you know, she's been in the mud or whatever. And, um, and then I will put a rope around the calf and just tie the calf to the trailer, um, right there next to the mom. And then I'll be on a little stool hand milking, um, the cow and the calf had gotten the milk started. And also the enzymes in the calf's saliva help to, um, to sanitize the teat. So I don't use any iodine and then I'll milk mm -hmm. the cow out. And at the very beginning, I'll leave two teats for the calf and only milk out two teats um, for myself and for whatever products I'll be making. But the um, later in the lactation period, you know, when the calf is six, seven, eight months old, I'll, I'll milk her out entirely in the morning because then the calf gets the milk for the afternoon. And um, then once I'm finished, I'll untie the calf 
and the calf goes back to the teats, which then sanitizes them again, um, you know, for the rest of the day. And I'm, I'm not worried about having to use iodine again at the end of the milking. It's amazing, you know, to hear you talk about the animals and about the milking process. And you just started Bayucera Farms in 2020. And it, and, and also, you know, let's, let's not overlook the fact that April 2020 was a very different universe. Right. <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so it's not like, it's not like, uh, um, that we, it's not like we had a lot of availability and access to things the way we would normally do, um, in a non-pandemic world. Um, so, um, and I know that you also originally years ago, um, when you left school, you were thinking about becoming a veterinarian, right? Yes, that was the idea. So how did you get to April, 2020? And I, and and I know this story, of course, of course, but our listeners don't. And it's a pretty wild road trip. So how did you get inspired with this water buffalo and get them to your farm? Um, so I had, after school, worked for a couple of years, um, decided I wasn't going to be, like, follow the veterinarian path. And um, then worked in sales for a while and though I was making good money, it wasn't very fulfilling for me. And so then I decided, um, I always imagined having a farm later in life, um, but didn't ever quite think about the logistics of what that would look like. I just kind of would daydream about sitting on a rocking chair on the front porch, looking at a farm. And, um, <laughs> and so then at some point, um, after working a couple of years after college, decided uh, that I wanted to start a farm and realized that I needed my my age and my body to my advantage to be able to do the uh, labor that it would require to, to start from the ground up. And so I gave myself two years and took my savings and um, worked and volunteered on different farms around the country, uh, worked on a chicken farm, worked on a cattle ranch, and then found myself on a um, goat and sheep farmstead dairy in Tamales, uh, California at, um, Tolma Farms and Tomales Farmstead Creamery. And that was a wild story kind of winding up there anyway, but that was with goats. And that was what I was imagining um, working with in dairy. And while I was out there, I heard about water buffalo gelato. Um, and I didn't, I'd never even heard of milking a water buffalo before. And so I thought mm. I need to know more about this. And on my day off from working um, on the farm and in the creamery, I went and visited a um, local grocery store an hour south of where I was, and they had um, water buffalo gelato soft serve at the meat counter. And I went and got some and wandered around the aisles, attempting to shop, but distracted by the gelato. Um, and my wheels were kind of turning about how delicious it was and how unique it was. And then when I hopped back in my car, I called the lady, um, Tamara, who owned the farm that I was working on and asked her where this water buffalo farm was or how I could visit it. And she was friends with the man who owned it and set me up with a little private tour to go meet him and see the place and meet the buffalo. And um, once I got there, we toured the place and toured the creamery. And then when we walked up to the building where the all the buffalo were, they were all kind of laying in the center of of this large area and one of them stood up and walked straight up to me 
and just put her chin on my chest and um, I started petting her and kind of immediately fell in love with that buffalo right then. And he was saying, oh, you know, we're getting rid of some of our older uh, buffalo if you're really interested in starting a dairy, you know, with them one day. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, keep me in mind. But I did not think I was actually serious. And um, <laughs> and then fast forward about a year later, um, my family purchased some property neighboring um some old family land that had a lot of pasture in it. Um, originally I, I was going to be farming on family land, but there was a lot of woods and it was more suitable for goats. Um, so then whenever this property was purchased and I'm able to lease from my family, I immediately started messaging about, um, fencing requirements and what it would entail to actually have Buffalo here. And the gentleman that I messaged uh, a guy named Jose, who has, um, rocking TT bar ranch, uh, which is now in, um, St. Louis or outside of St. Louis, he, uh, was in Colorado at the time. And my mom happened to be nearby and I had her go visit his farm. And he told her, you know, if your daughter's interested in getting some Buffalo, I'm about to go pick up a few from California and I'm going to bring them back to my farm and I could pick some up for your daughter and bring them here to my farm. And she could pick them up whenever she's ready. And we could split the cost of transport and, um, it just kind of seemed too serendipitous and too good to be true because the farm he was going to was the farm that I had visited. And so I called the guy at that farm and asked if um, Stevie Nix was the name of the water buffalo I first met. I asked if she was still for sale and he said yes. And she was like a third of the price is a, um, cause she's older, but she's, she was 10 at the time and um, they'll have calves for 25 years. And, um, and so I, transferred money into this guy in Colorado's bank account. I'd never even met him before for him to go buy two pregnant heifers and Stevie Nicks. And he did it and brought them to his farm. And then um, I had plans to pick them up the following summer. But then when the pandemic hit, um, it seemed like the right move to go get them. Um, and so I set out on a long road trip to go pick them up from Colorado. And whenever I left. I didn't have a single fence post driven into the ground yet on the farm. <laughs> and uh, the guys that were going to be putting up the fence, I was like, I need you to guarantee me that there will be at least a small paddock to be able to unload some buffalo in by the time I get back. And I left on a Wednesday, came back on a Saturday. And um, sure enough, by the time I came back, they had put up, you know, the smaller paddock behind my barn and had done about a third of the perimeter fence. And, um, so we made a road trip in the height of the pandemic and Texas borders were closed and we used gloves at gas stations and brought all of our own food and wondered if we were insane. And, uh, then got back here with the Buffalo and it kind of worked out in our favor with the pandemic because, um, I wasn't working much on my um, off-farm job with the pandemic, and I was able to focus a lot on the buffalo and figuring out systems, and I had never milked a buffalo until I owned one, <laughs> so it was a big wow. learning curve. And it sounds like, I mean, the universe provides, and like, you were just, you and Stevie Nicks, you just like, had a moment that kind of was like, we are supposed to be doing this. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> and uh, it's incredible. It's incredible what happens when we just open ourselves up to experiences and and uh, 
and now here you are. So, um, so now you have these beautiful animals and you have this farm and you are, um, the only certified Buffalo milk dairy. What is, what exactly is your status right now in Louisiana? Cause I, I don't, I, I don't expect there to be many other buffalo, water buffalo farms in Louisiana. Right. There are not. I think that there's a couple, it's a place called Global Wildlife, and I think they have a couple of buffalo just for like a safari situation. And then I feel like someone else might have some in Lake Charles, but no one else has a dairy. And so I um, just built Mm -hmm. a small um, milking parlor. And so the... um, that milking parlor is Louisiana's first approved water buffalo milking parlor. And we are um, currently in the process of building a kitchen to be able to uh, make the gelato and have a a creamery here also. Um, But that's probably another year or so out. Right. And, you know, it's just incredible too, when we hear about how difficult it is for, um, for, you know, farming in general, just, you know, just that alone, and then being able to um, afford land and be able to um, make a living from it. Um, you also, I mean, you you have had other ways to um, sustain the farm as well, right? You were selling, you have um, some other things going on. Like, I think for a while, I think were you raising chickens and you have honey and blueberries? Right. So I started out as a, uh, Body Star Farm started as a meat bird operation where I was raising um, meat birds, selling them to restaurants and farmers markets. And that was before I got the buffalo. And um, mm-hmm. so I have a state approved slaughterhouse and I do that. I'm actually contemplating starting that back up um, now that I'm kind of getting a little bit of help on the farm. But um, that and then I have about 15 beehives and sell honey and I have chickens that I have a, a mobile egg laying or like a, a mobile egg mobile if you will and it's a, a trailer that has a little chicken coop with um with egg boxes uh built on top of it and I pull it around the pastures um following the buffalo and so they kind of help to spread the buffalo poop um limit the um, insect population by eating the larvae out of the poop in the fields and then also depositing their nitrogen-rich fertilizer behind them as they go. And so I sell those eggs to the local, local grocery store here. And then I also have a um, blueberry orchard that I planted in 2018 and another, um, another blueberry orchard that I lease with a friend. And so I will pick and sell blueberries to the grocery store up here too. Hmm. Sounds like there may be blueberry gelato in the future. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a delicious uh, blueberry gelato and a and a blueberry rosemary and a blueberry basil. It's pretty good. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use this as an opportunity for us to take um, a few uh, seconds to hear from our sponsor, and then we're gonna come back and talk a little bit more about. Um, about the farm and about cheese making. So we will be back uh, with Bayou Sarah Farms in just a minute. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, 
Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineur on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. And we're back. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm here with Sarah Rollin. She is from Bayou Sarah Farms, and we're talking about water buffalo and regenerative farming and uh, cheese making. So we were just talking about the different um, diversified um, uh, uh, parts of your farm. Um, And I know from talking with you before um, that regenerative farming, which is like the terms that people are using now um, to talk about farms like yours, integrated practices that all serve a purpose um, to the health of the farm and the animals on it and the, and the plants that grow. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to farming and, um, and also how the buffalo fit in? You mentioned before the commercial about, um, about the way when you're rotating um, and allowing the, the dung from the buffalo to help fertilize the land, but can you talk a little bit more about about this approach and why it's your approach? Yes. So, um, 
I believe in the concept of a biodynamic farm. I feel like we have all of these terms like biodynamic and regenerative mm -hmm. and sustainable that are kind of so saturated in conversations that it's almost like induces an eye roll and it's hard to continue listening, at least for me sometimes. Um, but it really just takes it back to mimicking the way that the natural world works without human interaction. And I believe that the land that I have access to farm here to be a steward of is available um, to me and I'm aware of what my human interaction is with it. And in that, I like the concept of allowing animals to live their lives as if they would be in the wild. So the buffalo are out to pasture with plenty of space and plenty of green grass. Um, pigs are in the forest with plenty of shade and little mud puddles. Chickens are able to free range and they're not confined in small spaces. Um, bees have plenty of native and um, different flowering species available almost year round. There's no chemicals sprayed. We don't use any pesticides. I uh, don't use um, crazy dewormers and things in my with my buffalo. Um, and I had met someone who was doing research with um, dung beetles and then kind of went a little bit of a wormhole with that. But everything that we do affects other things that we may not notice. And so if we deworm our animals um, with permethrin or, or these heavy chemicals that are suggested to use anywhere that anyone that you ask, um, it makes their feces sterile for the bugs in the, on the ground that would be bringing it into the soil. And um, so for me, I like the concept of um, focusing on helping animals to exist in their natural space and also not over-medicating or over-assisting in allowing them to do so. Um, I think that, that, that whenever we interfere too much and do all of that, it kind of, kind of disrupts systems that we don't really think of. Like when I was raising meat birds and realizing that the breed that I was raising had been um, you know, modified and bred specifically for the breast meat, the birds didn't have sound feet. They didn't have good eyesight. They didn't have mm -hmm. the mind to, to seek shelter, you know? And um, so I, I believe that that's another piece too that I appreciate with the buffalo because I feel like they haven't been um, too messed with genetically, at least not in the United States. And so in that regenerative way, um, we have, I had, I'm actually going to get pigs this the next weekend. Um, I had a couple during the pandemic, but water was an issue. Um, but now I've got that figured out. But with that is the concept of, you know, putting pigs into a forest and they clear out the underbrush and then uh, humans can go in and chainsaw out any uh, non-desirable species of trees and different things. And then that kind of creates a silver pasture below um, planting cover crops and then over time able to graze buffalo there. And then after the buffalo, after the buffalo um, bring in the chickens and then continuing that system and instead of having to put in thousands of dollars of fertilizer into the fields to be able to grow grass or grow forages or um, have a healthy soil, you, um, you're, able, you're doing it with animals. And so I do not know so much about this. I'm learning as I go and am learning by observing what I'm doing. And um, I actually was signed up for a couple like rotational grazing seminars before COVID that I was really excited about before I actually brought the buffalo here, but then they were canceled and I haven't um, had a chance to go to another one. So there's still so much to, 
to learn, but I, I really get behind the concept of it and, um, and being able to have, to focus on the soil as a living system and allowing bugs and everything to flourish within it. And then even just in the couple of years that I've been here, noticing the bird populations are increasing the different species of birds that I see and the kind of birds that I see and um, the number of fireflies and different beneficial bugs that I enjoy looking around at. And if that's what I'm observing, then I know that there's much more going on that I, I think is, mm-hmm. um, is, you know, confirming as to how, how it's being done. Right. Right. And, and we really are just at the tip of the iceberg of understanding what the living communities are of microbes and such in the soil. Like we just right. have, we really need to take our cues from so much about what's happening around us to understand the health of the soil. And, um, and I, that's something that I try, I've tried to incorporate in some of my um, interviews um, since I started at Cutting the Curd because animals, cheese, so much of our food, all of our, well, all, mostly all of our food, except for that grown in labs, which actually we can even trace back to soil, but it all starts with soil. Right. And, um, and so it's just, you know, and, but when you're talking about taking your cues from seeing even the, um, the, when you're talking about the fireflies, just seeing a difference in, um, the number of fireflies or the birds. I think for a lot of us, we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of um, noise pollution in urban areas stopped and suddenly we were more aware of what was around us. And there was a sense that there was more around us um, mm-hmm. because of our the way, the changes in the way the humans were interacting with their environment. And um, so on that note, um, and talking about soil and soil health, animals, the milk being produced from the animals, and then making dairy products with that milk. Um, You uh, have had David Asher as a guest. Um, You've hosted, I believe you've hosted the workshops, right? With the Black Sheep School of Natural Cheese Making? Yes, I've hosted a couple. Yeah. And so that that whole approach um, about um, the natural environment, um, you're kind of like also talking about the terroir of where you are. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about this learning process? Um, you're having, you, you're milking your water buffalo. You got to do things with the milk. So, um, what is, what has that learning curve been like for you learning about cheese making? Um, so David Asher, uh, came in, June, I believe June of 2021. Um, and so that was a, a big turning point in my, I guess, uh, options for what to do with the milk. I had his book and I've made different cheeses and followed recipes. And um, But taking that class or having that class here really helped me to recognize and respect the basic nature of milk and of the raw natural cheese making process. Um, before there was a lot of like molds or if it wasn't completely sterile or different things that I had been seasoned or, or like led to believe would be harmful to someone's health or to myself or that would be not okay to, to eat or continue on at some point in the cheese making process. 
Um, but with David, he really follows the natural way and lets um, the cheeses turn into whatever they're meant to be. And these little molds and different growths and things going on them are not all bad. And the kind of cheeses that um, that he produced while he was here, uh, it was also cool to to note you know, if one thing goes a certain way, how it can be changed. For example, I had made uh, a mozzarella, but I missed my stretching window for the curd. And then instead of just discarding the curd or just eating it just as curd, I um, packed the curds into forms and then aged them for three weeks. And they were like a, it was a white blue cheese type scenario that this was the next year that David came to the class and he had never seen a cheese like that before. And he's like, I've always dreamed of this, but I've never seen this done. And that was such a wonderful compliment. Um, and I, I wouldn't have had that confidence to work with milk the way that I do now had, you know, had I not learned from him. Um, but in that, all of our milk is hundred percent grass fed. Um, I'll feed hay in the winters, but I would like to learn about this environment and the forages that are available and native and that maybe can grow throughout the winter so that we could possibly be grazing year round mm -hmm. at some point is the goal. Um, but with that, um, when David was here the first time, he noted that he had never seen milk of this quality before and he has taught all over the world. And that was the most validating thing that someone could have come in and told me as I was just kind of floundering and figuring out what I was doing with these animals and rotating them around and learning the grass and learning the animals. And um, that was very validating. And so to, to be able to start with such a, a pure, beautiful product, it's kind of hard to mess that up. Um, I've been making mm -hmm. some gelatos that I've just experimented with. Um, I have a basil black pepper and a, um, and a rosemary that I've been making lately and soon to be blueberry season. So I'll get back into making a blueberry gelato. Um, all of these are not, uh, I'm not able to sell them legally at the moment because I don't have a, a USDA inspected uh, creamery. Um, but I, you know, once I'm producing a higher volume of milk, we'll be able to justify the the cost to be able to rent a space or or actually build that space. And um, and then as far as the cheeses, I'm um, mostly doing just kind of a, a fresh buffalo, like a three day farm cheese, a lot. Um, and the mozzarella, I haven't gotten down entirely, but I have made it a few times and it is delicious. And, um, and yeah, it's all uh, using natural cheese making practices. So in the class with David, we um, sacrificed a young goat for the rennet. And so I've been using that natural rennet um, for making my cheeses. And I use a um, raw clabber, which is basically just raw milk left on the counter for 24 hours or for 48 hours. And it turns kind of to the consistency of yogurt. And then I'll take a teaspoon of that and put it in a cup of fresh milk from today. And so I started that a couple years ago and have had just this ongoing culture that I'm feeding like a sourdough basically every day. And mm -hmm. that is the foundation for any cheeses that I want to make. So it's basically like a 50 to one ratio, which is like a quarter cup of that clabber into one gallon of milk um, and that plus the rennet. So everything except for salt is, has been harvested or, or is growing here on this farm. So, you know, it's, it's an opportunity in the United States when we're looking at making, you know, like buffalo milk, mozzarella, 
um, or, you know, styles of cheeses that are normally, you know, associated with centuries of tradition in other parts of the world, you know, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be the goal to reproduce the exact texture and flavor, um, of that original inspiration in my, in my opinion, because of the specific, um, the, the specific um, microbes, the native microbes and like the specific flora that is growing, it's all going to influence the product that's made where you are, right? right. And, and so um, what, what do you think the terroir of where you are in Louisiana, what does it taste like? Gosh, it is so hard to say because I have never had fresh raw cheeses available to me like this anywhere in the United States to be able to compare it to anything. Like to me, mm-hmm. I think I'm so connected to the whole farm and to the animals. So the way that I smell after milking or, or visiting with them, the way that my hands smell, I don't, that funky smell doesn't translate into the milk, but there's something about the taste that I feel like I can taste these buffalo in it but I don't know how to explain that I am not um I'm not great at being able to describe the flavor but just a a sense of a a very fresh sense to it I guess is what Mm -hmm. I would say that I like a lot and in the mozzarella I have had um a raw mozzarella um you know made with buffalo milk in Italy and I have to admit that there's no mozzarella I've had made on this farm or by anybody in the United States that has come <laughs> even remotely close to that. Um, and so I think, like you said, of like dropping the idea of replicating something and instead, you know, it's like if you go to take a bite of something and you have this um, preconceived idea of what it should taste like, um, it kind of can alter your experience of, of tasting it, you know? And um, mm-hmm. so I think being able to offer it to people just as a fresh cheese and then discuss what it is afterwards allows for a very unique experience out the gate without like trying to put a name or a, or a place to it. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us um, on cutting the curd and talking with us today. I, think it's it's really important for us to um keep talking about soil health to be talking about animals to be talking about um you know this continuous journey of learning um and also to be talking to somebody who's um you know a young cheesemaker you know it's so happy to hear that um that this by you know Bayou Sarah Farms is is on its way, and um, and it was just really great to talk to you. I, 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 you know, like I referred to conversations you and I have had before, and it was just really great to be able to, you know, share you um, in your voice with our podcast listeners. And I hope you come back and join us again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a uh, fun journey and and just the beginning. Yep. And thank you all for listening to Cutting the Curd. Please visit us at Heritage Radio Network on our website. Check us out on social media. And, you know, you can always find us on any of your favorite streaming platforms and share us with your friends. Until next time. This show is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.